Well, praise the Lord. It's so good to come together. Uh, I'm thankful for Don. Don gave me a copy, uh, a hard copy again of my sermon this morning. If anything goes wrong with my iPad, uh, I've got a hard copy. Leader just spilt water all over it, so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, you know. Uh, the Lord is sovereign over the, all these things, so pray, we praise the Lord for all these things. Uh, God is so gracious unto us. And, and really, again, when you, when you look at this passage of Scripture, it's such an incredible passage of Scripture. I can remember the first time I read through the um, sermon, again, of Stephen. I didn't think there was much in it. It was really quickly, as I started studying through it, it really became one of my favorite sermons, you know, that, that I have ever read, that I have ever uh, studied. And, and it's an incredible one, you know, because he's, he's basically defending himself, isn't he? He's on trumped-up charges of blasphemy, and really what blasphemy was was treason against God and treason against the nation. You know, and the first thing he starts doing is he starts bringing up Abraham. You know, and the reason why he brings up Abraham is because two cardinal teachings as far as Jewish righteousness was their posterity, right? Right? They, they, they were of the children, again, of Abraham. And also that they were in the land. The land was the land of the, pro, the promise, and therefore God had to bless them. God had to be with them. And so when you look at this, when he looked at Abraham, who, who was Abraham? And Abraham was really a nobody. In fact, he was a moon worshiper. He was an idolater. He did not deserve the grace or the favor of God. And that was, and that was one point. And the other point is Abraham never owned a land. He never owned the promised land. And yet he was blessed of God. The most significant thing about the life of Abraham is not Abraham, but the God who called him. The God, again, of all grace and mercy that showed that grace and mercy towards Abraham. And it's an incredible, again, story. But now we come to Joseph this morning. You know, and, and uh, Joseph's amazing. And, and one of the things I love about the, um, and, I, and I have to keep reminding myself as I look at the Old Testament narratives, is that these things really happened. You know, this is not make-belief. These are not fables with a moral lesson that happened to be given here. But this is history. You know, and it's so good for us in, in, in a couple of ways to realize that. And one is because we see the God who interacts in history, don't we? We realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is in control of all events. So he's in control of Abraham's life, you know, through these seeming uh, um, in, encounters. You know, he gives Abraham a son in his old age. He provides that, that uh, ram that's caught in the thicket at the right time, that an offering, a substitute offering would be given for Isaac. You know, it's absolutely amazing. And when you look at all the trials, when you look at all the tribulations, when you look at all the travails of Joseph, God is with him every step of the way. And the valuable lesson about that is we learn about our own lives, don't we? We learn beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is sovereign. He's the sovereign lover of his people. And he's in control of all the details that happen to be in our life. You know, so when we look at those hard and difficult trials, we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign. He's up to good. He's up to glorifying his life and, cre and, and doing the greatest good that happened to begin in our life. And we'll talk about that again a little later. You know, but the other thing that we see through these historical narratives is that they are divine lessons, aren't they? How we're to trust God, how we're to follow God, how we're to believe again in him, how we're to have faith in him. And this is the main lesson of Stephen throughout this whole sermon, and I want you to hear it. It's basically this. Don't be, don't be like your, your uh, predecessors. Don't be like your forefathers. You know, do not make the same mistake of unbelief in the promises. Don't reject the revelation that comes from God. 
You know, somebody has once quipped, you know, the only thing that we learn from history is nothing at all. You know, you know, and what, what they meant by that is not that we don't know the facts, we don't know, again, the events that happen to begin right there, but we just don't learn the lessons. You know, I don't know how many people say this when they happen to begin in their teen, uh, teen years, I will never be like mom, I'll never be like dad. And you go 20 years later and well, what they're like, they're like their mother or father. And, you know, they have the same sins, the same demeanor, the same uncontrollable anger or whatever it happens to be. You know, and the good news for us that happens to begin of uh, who, who are in Jesus Christ is God has given us his spirit and his word. And because he's given us his spirit and his word, he can actually work through these narrative passages. He can actually change us. In fact, uh, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 6, he says, Now these things took place as what? As examples for us, and here's the outcome, that we might not desire evil as they did. Otherwise, we can be different. You know, we can be molded after that blessed image, that blessed likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have to follow in these repeated patterns, again, of sin uh, that so encapsulates so many people that happen to begin around us from one generation to another generation to another generation. But again, the question I want us to ask, and I really want to grapple with this morning, is why does Stephen bring up Joseph? You know, because he does skip. This is not a detailed history of the Jewish nation, is it? He does skip over information. In fact, he skips over information that happens to be again in Abraham's life. He never again mentions the son of his old age, you know, and all the events that happen to be again around it. He never mentions how, how he was commanded to take Isaac uh, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. I mean, what a great picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't mention that. You know, in fact, again, he skips over the whole lives of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And he comes to Joseph, and even some of the events of Joseph he overlooks. And the question again happens to be, why this information? And, and, and we realize this. This is not just random, you know, ramblings of a man. But there's a point to all of this. And the point is, right here, is do not, you're making the same error. You're making the same mistake. You are hardening your hearts against this great God. You know, and that's how they read the Old Testament. The Old Testament was basically a guide of how to be righteous before God. They looked at the Old Testament characters, which there are very few that are really stellar examples. There really are. Even, even the people who walk by faith, you look at their lives, and they're laden with sin. You know, and, and, and it's amazing because they would look at that. If I could just follow this roadmap, I can earn this righteous standing before God. And the Old Testament is about the grace of God, isn't it? This God who has grace. Listen to him. You know, because we realize God was good to the nation, wasn't he? He chose them, even though they were the fewest of number. He gave them commands. He gave them the covenants. But this is what they did with the revelation of God. They rebelled against it. They were obstinate. They were stiff-necked in all of this. And the message, again, that happens to be there is do not be like them. You know, and this is why he chooses Joseph. Because when you look at the life of Joseph, when you look again at his brothers, it's emblematic of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Don't repeat that same error. Don't repeat that same sin, that same hard-heartedness that happens to begin right here. And I know, again, a lot of people can say, you know, as I read these old narrative passages, they really don't have much relevance in my life. You know, and I think, again, it's a good question to always ask. Anytime you're going through a passage of Scripture, it's basically this, so what? You know, what's the relevance? 
you know, why, why, why is the Holy Spirit of God, why, why does Stephen even uh, choose to preach, the, preach this passage of Scripture? You, you know, so what? You know, uh, how does an ancient text that is written 2,000 years ago have any relevance in my life when I'm living in the here and now? And let me just say this. It has great relevance for a couple reasons. And one is because God is the same. Here it is. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And when I see him in these Old Testament historical narratives interacting and how he acts and how he's over all of the details that come to pass, it helps me understand my life and understand my struggles, my trials, my travails that happen to begin in my own life. But the other thing that, that it teaches us that even though cultures, even though peoples, even though histories change, the human heart has not changed. The human heart still is obstinate against God. The human heart, again, is still hardened against this, this God. It creates the same follies. It rejects the same Christ. It goes in the same rebe rebellion and sin. So we really want us to study, again, Joseph's um, uh, life we, we, with those two things that happen to begin in mind. There's a message for the people of God, but there's a message, again, that happens to be uh, those outside, those who are rejecting right now. Don't be like those who went before you. You know, trust Christ. There's so much mercy that happens to be right there. But I really want us to look at the human condition. And you can see that in verses 9 and 10, because we'll look at what the text again says right here. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and, all, and over all his household. You know, here's the here's amazing thing, and uh, I hope we can all echo that, uh, but, but it is incredible how much we think that we're righteous, more righteous than other people that happen to be around us. Do you believe that? And some might say, no, 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 I'm humble. You know, I'm a humble sinner, you know, or I'm broken and all this. But think about it. Think about how much righteousness still lives in your human heart. Right? Here's a, here's a good way to test it. In all your conversations this week, and everything that came out of you, how much did you complain about other people, and how much did you complain about the own sin that happened to be in your own heart? Think about it. How much? How much was I overwhelmed with my debt for the things that I have done to this holy God and thought of self? How much did I see of my own pride? And how, how much did I complain, bicker? How, how much did I grow bitter against those that happen to begin around us? And what's at the core of that? What's at the core of that is the own self-righteous. You know, we almost have the feeling that God must be so well pleased with me compared to others that happen to begin around me. And don't, don't people do that even with the biblical text? You know, how could the disciples, after all that they see, saw, desert the Lord Jesus Christ on the night of his betrayal? I mean, how, how could they do that? Right? If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, they saw all of these signs, all of these wonders. They heard all these sermons by Jesus. And just a few days before, he, he, he resurrected uh, Lazarus from the dead. He's the Messiah. How could they ever desert him? And yet, when was the last time we testified to an unbeliever of faith in Jesus Christ? In the gospel, right? Better change the subject. We're getting too near. Let's talk about sports. Let's talk about the weather. Right? And we balk. 
we're overcome with fear. And sometimes we're even overcome with shame. You know, uh, look at those Sanhedrin. I can't believe they reject Jesus. And here's the thing you have to realize about the human condition. Our hearts, our natural human hearts, are so wicked that they are capable of doing the greatest human atrocities in all history. And that's the message of the Old Testament. You know, as far as mankind, as far as who we are. You know, and, he, and in verse, verse 9 is an interesting verse because, again, Stephen says this, and he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, Again, think of it. Why is he bringing up Joseph? And the reason why, here it is, is because Joseph is emblematic of Jesus, isn't he? You can see that in his humiliation, right? Here, here's Jesus in his humiliation. Here he is in the exaltation. Here's Joseph in his humiliation. Here is Joseph in his exaltation. But here's the question then. If he's using that as emblematic of Jesus Christ, of Joseph, then who are the ten brothers? And there's only ten brothers at this time because Benjamin has not been born. So who are the ten brothers emblematic of? Well, who is Stephen before? And he's before the Sanhedrin. Right? And the Sanhedrin have power. They have the ability to talk. They have the ability to act. They have the ability to function, just like Joseph's brothers. And then we have this word, why we see they're inspired to act against Joseph. And it's the word, here it is, jealousy. Now, think of what jealousy is. And let me just say this. The Sanhedrin, back in chapter 5, in verse number 17, we, we see that they arrested the apostles and threw them in jail because they were jealous of them. They were doing these miracles, these revelations from God. They were speaking forth. Crowds were coming all around them, and they were jealous. Look, we're the leaders. We're supposed to have this revelation from God. We're supposed to have this power. We're supposed to have people following us. And they were jealous. You know, and that's what jealousy is, isn't it? Jealousy is to look at somebody else and really want what they have and really even goes further because it believes beyond a shadow of a doubt, I deserve more. Uh, I deserve those good blessings. I deserve those good things more than that other person. And when you're jealous of somebody, you cannot love them. When you're jealous of somebody, you cannot praise God. When you're jealous of somebody, you cannot live that contented life that God has called us to. Right? And you can see that in the religious leaders. The question is, again, how were the brothers of jo Joseph uh, jealous of Joseph? Well, let me just say two ways. And one is because Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. Right? The code of what? Many colors. Here's, here's Joseph. We can see him in the distance. And he's coming to see if we're working to report back to dad. Right? And they're not too happy about it. Right? And I think it's a great lesson for any and all parents to really look how you treat all of your kids. I think it's a great lesson that happens to be again right in there. But the other reason, and I want you to get this, why the brothers are jealous, are angry, are frustrated, against Joseph is because Joseph 
was given revelation from God. Wasn't he? And they didn't like the revelation. God, uh, Joseph didn't make this up. He was given dreams. One day, uh, God told me, I'm going to rule over the family. I'm going to rise up, up higher than you. One day, I'm going to rise up and people are going to bow down to me. And they, how can this be? The things that we've done, the things that we've experienced, how can this guy ever, this younger brother of us, everything? And get this, the problem is not with the revelation. The problem is with a, both with the Sanhedrin and Joseph's brothers, the problem is with a sinful and hard heart that will not accept that revelation from God. And I want to make this really clear. When you look at Joseph, when you look at his brothers, when you look again how they want to kill him and they end up again um, reconciling to sell him to the Midianites in slavery instead, when you look at the Sanhedrin and how the Sanhedrin put Jesus to, de to uh, death and now they want to put any, any followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to death, when you look at all of that, there's no logic in that. There's no, again, logical debating in the mind what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. There's none of that that goes on. And this is what you have to realize. The human heart, what happens to be inside of us, is not in a neutral position. It's already hardened against God. It's already hardened against his gospel. And in fact, if the Holy Spirit does not come in our life when the gospel is again being preached and shine that light of the gospel in a dark place, if he doesn't give us a heart of flesh, there is no entrance ever of that word into our lives. And it never starts off, again, in this neutral position. But notice verse number nine, at the end of verse number nine, because Stephen makes this point, and I love this, and he says, but... God, you're right, all is up opposition, but God was with them. And I think that's the greatest frustration to those that happen to be in rebellion, those who happen to hate God, isn't it? Because you look at the last 2,000 years of church history, the, the, the people have come and they tried to stamp out Christianity, stamp out Christianity, stamp out Christianity. We hate Christianity. That's what St. Edron did. Let's crucify Jesus. Oh, he rose from the dead, dead. Let's crucify, let's kill all of these witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's the amazing thing. Man will do what he wants to do and many times do very wicked. And it looks like he is... Uh, go, go, going forth, but in the end, let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is with his people. And that's why there's a triumph of the gospel. You know, and he goes on and tells us in verse number 10 how this all worked out, and he says, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all the households. Now, you know, when you get by past that God gave Joseph the ability, or, or gave Joseph revelatory dreams and the ability to interpret these other dreams that came from God. When you get past that, everything is normal about jo uh, Joseph's life. And you have all these random occurrences that put Joseph just in the place where God wants him to be. 
But let me tell you, tell you, if we were writing the story of eternity, we would never write it that way. Isn't it true? Joseph is going to be, again, this great ruler. Well, how do we make a great ruler? Right? Well, let's send him off to get the best education. You know how to influence people, how to be friends and influence people. You know, let's, let's send him off to management school. Let's start him off in a corporation, maybe in the mailroom. Let's say, you know, after he gets good at that, let's get him to do some errands. After he does that, let's give him a desk job, you know, over in the corner that happened to begin right there. After he gets good at that, after a number of years, let's give, give him a managerial position. After that, you know, let's give him, again, some sort of executive position. After that, let's put him, again, as a junior vice president, and that will lead to vice president. And finally, after 30 or 40 years, here is Joseph, and he's president, right? Every step is up. But here's Joseph, right? Right? Here's Joseph. And every step in his life is down, is further away from those revelatory dreams that God had given him. Right? Here he is, right? Given these dreams, everything's great. Got a coat of many colors. Right? And then he's taken and thrown into a pit and later sold into slavery. Come a slave to the Midianites. Here he's in Potiphar's house. Here he's working diligently and working hard, and things seem to be progressed. Then he's accused of, of rape, right? Step down, step down. And then he's thrown into prison, step down. And then he's forgotten in prison, step down. And then all of a sudden, boom. It's absolutely amazing. And and, and, and Joseph sees this, because later, again, when he's talking to his brothers, his brothers are worried about his life, uh, the, 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 their lives, their father is, is just about to die. In Genesis chapter 50, in verse number 20, he says this, As for you, what you, what, what you meant, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Right? All of these random events to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is elevated. And vindicated. But don't you see Jesus Christ in that? Jesus starts his ministry in such fanfare. I mean, there's this prophet who is doing all of these miracles, all of these signs, all of these wonders, and he's preaching about God like nobody has ever preached before. And people are flocking. You know, he's the most popular preacher in all of uh, Judah. And then all of a sudden, you don't know, they start understanding their message. They start understanding what kind of Messiah he is. They start understanding their need of repentance, their need of cleansing. And all of a sudden, every step is down. You know, you get to John chapter 6, and all of a sudden, you hear this massive crowd, and he tells them, he basically preaches the gospel. He's not preaching about cannibalism there. He's preaching the gospel. And we read, they left. Right? And it ends up, here it is, step down, step down, step down, until his betrayal, his crucifixion, and the people are looking at him, right? right? He's before Pilate, he's been beaten by the soldiers, what should we do, for, do with him? Crucify him, crucify him. We don't want anything to do with him. Yeah, 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 but when you look in the Old Testament, there's all, these, all this message about Jesus that he's fulfilled. Crucify him, we don't want him. Right? And he's hanging on a cross. And here's Pastor Byers from Jerusalem. Here's Pastor Byers going to other places of Judea and they're wagging their heads. 
I said he could save others, and he can't even save himself. Right? And he was at the lowest point. And all of a sudden, three days later, there's an exaltation. Right? And what Joseph is, is a faint picture of that. You know, that God is the one who's controlling all of these things. You know, and, and that every knee in Joseph's time bows to him, and every knee before the Lord Jesus Christ will bow before him. And that brings a dual message, doesn't it? There's one for the people of God, and it's this. You cannot get away from it. You cannot get away from it. If you look at these Old Testament narratives, you can't get away from that. And that is the sovereign, right? God's in control of all of these. The sovereign love of God. Isn't it amazing? He's in control of everything that happens to be in my life, even the hurtful, even the harmful, even the things that bring me pain, sorrow, and tears. And he's got a purpose for it. I was reading uh, this week, and the author, again, was talking about unanswered prayer. Now, if I was to ask you, how many of you have prayed for something and prayed for something really, really good in your life, and it, and it went unanswered? If I was to ask hands, if you do pray, you'd probably put up your hand. And here's, the old whole, here, here's what the author's whole point of what the sovereign love of God was. If we knew what God knew, if we understood to the nth degree what he understands, how he's going to be magnified, how he's going to be glorified, and how it's going to work for our good, we would be praying that we would go through the things that we are going through. What incredible God. You know, and you can see these things that happen to begin right there, but there's also another message, isn't it? For those who many times, right, right, say, I don't care what you say. I don't care again what God says. I don't care again about his revelation. I'm just going to harden my heart against this. And here's the message. Don't be like Joseph's brothers. Don't be like the Sanhedrin. Don't be like Saul of Tarsus. Remember in chapter number 9? Chapter number 9, here is Saul of Tarsus, and he's going to persecute the church, and he's struck down by this light. And we read in Acts chapter 9, verse number 4, these are the words of Jesus, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, here's the the words of Jesus, Saul, Saul. And then he asked him this question, why are you persecuting me? And, and, And think of the question, because there is no good reason to be persecuting. There is no good reason to be rejecting God's revelation of his son. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of that great salvation. And that really brings us to the second point. And the second point, again, that happens to be again right here is the bountiful grace of God to ill-deserved and rebellious sinners. And you can see it in verses 11 and following. And we'll just follow along as, as I read this passage. It says, Now there was a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he, set, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And then on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. 
And I, I don't think, you know, we live in a very busy uh, day and age, don't we? You know, I can remember um, just this week I sat down and it was a moment of stillness. Nothing was going on. And you know what I thought? I need to be doing something. Isn't it true? And I think a lot of times we just do not sit still. And we don't ponder the enormity of God's grace through Jesus Christ that is shown to us who are ill, deserving, and rebellious sinners. And there's pictures of how great that grace is all the way through the word of God. In fact, we saw one in the book of Acts. You know, in the book of Acts, you, you know, you have all these things that happen to be going on. Uh, you have the disciples that are beaten, um, um, uh, thro thrown into prison. But we read this in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 7. This is right after the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. And it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then it says this, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And the reason why I bring that up is because think of where they are. They're in the confines of, um, uh, of Jerusalem. And the greatest enemies of Christianity, the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ during this whole period was the religious elite. And here's this group of priests who would have been opposed to Jesus. Maybe they would have even been there at his crucifixion. Maybe they would have been taunting and jarring and all these other things and celebrating the death again of this man. And all of a sudden, in their hardened hearts, the light of the gospel through the grace of Christ comes in. It shines up. It opens up. It makes it soft. It makes it palatable. Can you imagine the guilt can you imagine the wait? Here is God in human flesh. Here is the Messiah that we've waited so long for. And I cried out, crucify him. I taunted him. And yet, this Jesus is willing to forgive me and bring me close. Can you remember the days when you first came to a saving knowledge of Jesus and you couldn't imagine the grace? I mean, it was just so amazing. You know, uh, these words, God, God chose me. God loves me. Jesus died for me that I might be with him. Do we see these still, the abundance, the glorious, the unimaginable grace of God that's given to his people? You know, and, and Stephen doesn't go through a detailed storyline of everything that happened. We realize that, again, from the time that, Steve, uh, that, that uh, Joseph was thrown into prison all, all through those difficult years until the butler remembered him. Oh, yeah, there's that guy in prison. You know, there's that guy who interprets their dreams. And the only reason why he remembered him is Pharaoh has this tough dream. And in the province of God, nobody can interpret it. Even the wise men of the age cannot give any semblance. Their mouths are kept shut, and they cannot interpret. He says, I remember. I remember two years ago. Oh, man, I forgot about this guy. He interpreted a dream that I had. And he's brought forward. And in the providence of God again, here it is, Jacob. No food here. Right? Right? In the providence of God, here's Jacob. And there's no food. And he sends his sons 
to get food to Egypt. That the place that they go to buy food, Joseph's there. And Joseph's seen him. Think about it. Just saw him as a young lad, probably a teenager. You know, and he would have been unrecognizable. Would have been dressed in um, Egyptian uh, clothing. And he would have been unrecognizable. They hadn't seen him since they sold him into slavery to the Midianites. And they could never think that this could be the brother that they're before them. Now, you know, Joseph wants to bring them to the saving knowledge of Christ. He wants them, again, to really trust in that revelation, really wants to work repentance in them, and they're accused of stealing. And here's the thing I want you to get, because a lot of times people can do evil against us. A lot of times it can even look like they get away, here's the word, scot-free with the evil that they're done against us. And here's the brothers, and they're all gathered together. They're thinking about why this evil. We're innocent again of this evil. We didn't steal anything. But why does this evil come against us? And who do they remember? God has brought this. Do you remember 20 years ago what we did to our brother? God has brought this upon us. This is his judgment. And I don't know how Joseph does it. Because think about it. Joseph, all those hard years, all those difficult years, all those years of trial, travail, accusation, all these hardships that happen to be in his life, he would have replayed that moment in the anger and their hostility that they threw him in the pit and later sold him into, into slavery. And you can't help, when you read that narrative, when you understand, again, that historical narrative of putting yourself in Joseph's position, this is the excellent time, right, for my pound of flesh, for me to get even, for me to lash out. And we do that many times, right? We have these intimations, we have these thoughts, we have these meditations, we're thinking about, again, a person who might be categorized as an enemy, just getting evil or, evil, or just some, something bad befalling upon them. And we think about all of these things. But look at what happens in Acts chapter 7 and verse number 13. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. There's, a, there's really a touching scene where all this plays out in Genesis chapter 45. And let me just read it and just try to carry on the narrative and think about what's going on. It says here, during his second visit, it says, uh, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, listen to what he says, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? And listen to the response of the brothers, because I, this is why I love the word of God. It's so real, because anybody would have responded this way. It says, it, it says but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I mean, isn't it true? Joseph, how can it be? And then there's a verse, 
You know, uh, that, that sounds a lot like uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse number 20, that talks about God's sovereignty. And then we, we read this, first of all, it says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And this is so different when we have enemies. Think about it. And now, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you realize the great ramification that we're actually here because of that statement? You know, he preserves the life of the nation. You know, in his infancy, formed his family, who becomes a nation, and the Messiah comes through him. And we're here praising this Lord that happens to be again uh, uh, here. But Joseph gave them, and this is the whole point, this otherworldly forgiveness and grace. They get from Joseph what they do not deserve. And let me just say this. This is a very dim illustration of what, Joseph, uh, of what Stephen is offering to the Sanhedrin. The wonderful love, the wonderful forgiveness, the wonderful grace of Christ, and it's what we have received. You know, rather than wrath, rather than hostility, ra rather than forever punishment, we read in John chapter 3 and verse number 16, for God so loved the world, even though he served all of that, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Joseph, and, and, and think of it. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but it's so popular today even among Christian circles, but it's basically this. I forgive you, but I just don't want anything to do with you. You know what Joseph says? I'm your brother. Come close. Come close. Come close. You know what God does in salvation? God just doesn't say, I forgive you. Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. You know what happens when one sinner repents? Do you, you know what happens in heaven? Do you know what happens in heaven? Remember the parable of the lost coin? They search and search and search, and they finally find, uh, find it, and then Jesus gives the application in Luke chapter 15, and verse number 10. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I think we get this idea of God as this angry deity who is never pleased with us, who doesn't enjoy our fellowship, who doesn't enjoy our, 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 our presence. And nothing could be further from the truth when we come through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's two challenges I want us to leave us with. Again, um, um, here and one is don't be like the religious leaders don't be stiff-necked don't be like Joseph's brothers all those years you know and when you look at the religious leaders that they would be offended at this whole story we're not like them we don't need forgiveness you know we don't need grace 
And they would hatefully reject this message of God's glorious grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of anything more heinous, any sin that's more heinous? But that's what we do when we reject Jesus at every, again, opportunity to repent and trust in him. And God is willing to forgive any and all who come to him truly recognizing their debt of sin and trusting in Christ. And the other message, again, that happens begin for, for us as believers, you know, us as followers of Jesus Christ who have trusted in him, I think we get lost in the middle of our stories, and all of a sudden, you know, we get beat down, we get beat down, we get beat down, we get beat down. Joseph is a wonderful example of somebody, again, who doesn't get beat down, but get beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down. And all of our intimations are all on our difficulties and all on our problems. You know, so often, again, we think, again, we're not, we don't deserve this. I don't deserve this life. And we forget through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ what we deserve for all of eternity and what we get. And what we need to do during those times of struggle, though during those times where we see the lost in the middle of this story that God is writing for us, is we need to bring our minds back to this terrific, glorious, grand grace that none of us deserve. We deserve the opposite. And I will guarantee you, in the midst of all of your trials, it might not change your trials, but it will change you. It will change you as you look at this brilliant grace that's only found in Christ. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for these historical narratives, Lord, that teach us, that proclaim Christ, Lord, that fashion us, that show us again our own sinfulness, uh, God, that we might trust in Christ. We just pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray again, if there's any that are not, that are not outside of your grace, even here this morning, God, that you would work so wonderfully and bountifully in your word to bring that repentant trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. We thank you so much. Just be with us now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.